This is 30 Wood, a podcast celebrating the 30th anniversary of Fernwood Publishing. In this series, we talk to Fernwood authors about their work, their activism, and why radical publishing is so critical. In this episode, I talk with Kathy Absalon about Indigenous research methods, how we learn the things that we know in life, and her book, Kindoswin, How We Come to Know. It's a wonderful conversation that academics and activists alike will enjoy. Kathy Absalon, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Miigwech. I've been asking everyone to introduce themselves so that they can give the listeners the fullest possible picture of uh, of our guests. So can you introduce yourself for everybody? Bonjour. It's an Anishinaabe greeting from my spirit to your spirit. Greetings. Um, I'm Menogi Jigonkwe. I'm a Shining Day woman, one that brings goodness and beauty to the day. Uh, my English name is Kathy Absalon, and I'm from Flying Post First Nation Treaty 9, which is part of the Anishinaabe Aski Nation. And Wapshishi and Dodem, I'm Martin Clan. Me and Mama Makwando Dam. My mother is the Bear Clan. And um, I'm Anishinaabe and British. And uh, I um, a lot of what I do has been informed by growing up in the bush and on the land. And right now I teach at the Indigenous Field of Study in the Faculty of Social Work at Wilfrid Laurier University. And I am the director of the Center for Indigagogy also within the Indigenous field of study at Laurier. Can you talk about how land-based experience informs the academy? Because oftentimes I think it's a little difficult for people to navigate. I think it is too. And it was it's really can be a place or a space that often does not include a land-based knowledge system. Uh, and so for me... I spent the first 19 years of my life in the bush before I moved away from home to go to college. And I didn't realize how much that impacted my knowing and my being and, and how I how I am and how I do things and and how I engaged with writing and and so it was only when I started thinking about how we come to know that I actually started going back into my memory and going back into my memory. And I started going back and thinking about, well, how did I come to know? Like, how did I not, not get lost in the bush? So I went back to that reference point of navigating the land and growing up where there weren't um, streets and signs in this in the way that towns and cities have them. How did I not get lost? And how did I know to pay attention to the to the markers on the land and the signs and to to memorize um, landscapes? And when I when I took that memory of not getting lost and I brought it forward into my work and to my presence in the academy, it helped me to to know that somewhere in me I had the tools and I had the ability to 
navigate a system or um, an education system that wasn't set up for somebody like myself. It was set up based on Euro-Western dominant values and belief systems and knowledges. And so the knowledge that I had from the land, from my grandparents, from my mother, from my family growing up in the bush, was knowledge that actually helped me to stay in the academy. And it helped me to realize that, wow, I know how to navigate the bush. I know how to not get lost. I have the ability to to um, find my way in a sense, like a wayfinder <laughs> through the world. And so many times I felt lost in the academy. I felt lost in the policies and mm-hmm. the uh, way we picked out courses or when you had to go and appeal something and the systems that I I just kept thinking, well, if I can find my way in a land where there are no paths and many times I'm bushwhacking, then I can I can find my way and make my way in this institution. I can make my way in the academy. And it really helped me to to know that I had it in me to stay and to and to find my way. Well and how did that knowledge then uh find itself in your in your research and in what you've written? Oh I just love your questions. So when I was in my doing my PhD and at uh, the University of Toronto in the Faculty of Adult Education at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education, I started looking for other Indigenous peoples and knowledge holders on how we come to know. Like, how do we find knowledge? How do we produce knowledge? How do we do, you know, what mainstream calls research? Because I did not want to I didn't want to perpetuate Euro-Western methods and the dominance of um, colonial um, theories and methodologies within in my search. And I was actually going to do a research project on something completely different. But because when I was searching for others, it was like I was in the forest and I was like looking for who else is out there? Is anybody else here? And I found myself searching for indigenous ways of coming to know indigenous knowledges indigenous methods of of stepping into how we come to know so we could do indigenous um research from an indigenous worldview and when i started looking scanning the landscape and this is the this is my reference point so i i thought i used a lot of this language i use a lot of this language in my book the uh, the landscape of how we come to know and the lands and how lands and territories inform us and how we live in alignment with what the land offers us and the um and we eat the food for example food sovereignty around what is around us and so it's a similar thing around how we come to know and when i was in the academy i was pretty committed to not replicating uh, your Western ways of knowing. I already knew I did not want to do that again. And I started thinking about my grandparents, my Kokomish and my Shomish. And I thought about the wealth of knowledge they had. They they knew how to live independent of Costco or, you know, hydro or the gas companies 
or oil and gas companies. My grandparents knew how to live independent. They were self-sustaining. And I thought about the knowledge that that requires and how did they come to this knowledge? So my grandparents came forward into my into my awareness as I was scanning the forest. I, I was almost like sitting on the land and looking as I was searching for others. I started thinking about my history and my past and the ones that um, I looked up to. And wow, how did my grandfather know how to go and trap and follow a, um, a marten or a weasel for days with only one backpack and just snowshoes? How did he know how to do that? How did he know how to go and track a moose and then harvest a moose and skin it and turn everything into mukluks and moccasins? How did my grandparents know how to live independent of this system that we have all become so dependent upon? And uh, and I thought of the, 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 the richness in that knowledge. And so in the academy and writing and searching for how we come to know, I knew based on what I knew about my grandparents, because they were still so close to me, I witnessed them living that life. And I witnessed how independent they were and how sustaining, how self-sustaining they were. I witnessed that in my parents, how self-sustaining they were. And they took pride in that, that we could live in independently without mainstream um, services and utility companies that we could actually survive. And my parents took a lot of pride in that. And even though my dad was British, he learned a lot about that from my grandparents. And so I knew that embedded in Indigenous knowledge systems, there, there was something about how we come to know that was important to discern and to search for and to find. And this analogy of going on a journey or looking to the land and searching for this was really deeply a part of how I saw myself going on this search and looking for others like myself who wanted to align their work, their searches within an Indigenous knowledge system and contribute to restoring Indigenous knowledge, contribute to the resurgence of a knowledge, a belief, a value, principled ethics that had been erased and eroded through colonial um, forms of knowledge production and colonizing education systems. And I was pretty committed to restoring what I knew my grandparents knew. Your students must react to this in different ways. I imagine there's some students who see themselves in in this approach to research, and I imagine there's some students that really struggle with it. How does this play out in the classroom? It's so interesting. I teach right now in, um, I teach both in a graduate program and a master's within Indigenous, uh, within the Indigenous field of study, and I teach a PhD course. I also do professional development and training with the Centre for Indigagogy on Indigenous research methodologies. And so I have a number of different, I guess, audiences that I, that I teach to. And, you know, this is so interesting. The, um, it plays out in a number of ways. First of all, when people come to a class on Indigenous search methodologies, 
we have to begin to look at what we think we know and we and what I've learned over the years is that I come in with such enthusiasm with such um, passion about that we have this in our knowledge system you don't have to draw on Euro Western methods that it's embedded in in you just have to look back to your ancestors you, you have to look to the land you have to look to our original instructions and align the way in which you want to come to know with what are your gifts. You know, it's so interesting that with my passion and my enthusiasm, that sometimes some of the students would get it. Like they're right there. They've decol- They've been working on, you know, decolonizing and, and, and unpacking their colonial um, ideas and how colonial education has um, impacted them. And other students look at me, with um, a bit of a confusion and a curiosity and they like the idea but there's such fear and insecurity and trepidation and um, uncertainty about can I do this and how can I do this and are you saying that and is this valuable is this valuable knowledge is this am I going to actually be able to finish this class and go out and do research or is this all something that is like in a sense folklore or whatever and so I I started thinking about this kind of conundrum that students um some students indigenous and non-indigenous students um responded with and I started thinking about that over the years and so in the second book of Kandaswin how we come to know I actually ended up writing a a whole chapter on what I call colonial research trauma. And I started realizing that while students come to my class with this thirst for knowing and a desire to do things differently and a desire to restore their indigeneity and restore Indigenous knowledge, or if you're non-Indigenous, to restore holistic um, methods to your search journey, that... We, are, we have been inundated in our mind, in our spirit, in our heart, in our, in our being with colonial ways of knowing and being and doing in how we come to know in knowledge production, in research. And so I recognize that my students, too, had um, what I call colonial research trauma because they would come to the class questioning if this is valid not really um, being able to step into it right away because their pathway was so cluttered with insecurity, fear, um, doubt. And even before they came to my class, they were already had such, they were already full of fear. And I started recognizing this and equating that to trauma. And so then I started thinking about the research classes they had taken in the past where they were, um, where they felt inferior, stupid, inadequate, they couldn't do it, and that this is too far above them. And that there's this elitism and jargon that is embedded in, in universities that situates the experts as higher and, and, and more knowing than students. And so there's this, um, there's this um, gap and the students that came to my classes reflected that in, in what they said in terms of that. I don't, I don't like research. I don't see its application. They were resistant. 
Some of them were open. And I started wondering what was what this was all about. And so we started unpacking that over the years. And, and as a result, I started understanding it more. That's more a symptom of the, the research trauma they had experienced in previous courses. And I too could identify that because I had that too. I didn't think I knew what I was doing or that I was terrified of research. I didn't see its application. I stayed away from it. And the jargon in research was further entrenched that uh, the distance between the elitism of those that know how to produce knowledge and those of us that don't, that just come from the bush. And um, how could I ever like take my place? And so when I start acknowledging this colonial research trauma with my students, and then they can identify with this, it starts to bring it starts to bridge that gap into like, you actually know how to do this. And then when I start talking about how our ancestors or how we search for knowledge, either by opening up with a general question or saying, you know, when you go berry picking, you're beginning a search. Or when you have people for social workers, when you have people come into your office, you're beginning a search. So I really try to help the learners connect to we're all searchers we're all searching we're all knowledge searchers we're all wisdom seekers we're all on a journey to learn and to and to um it's how do we come to know that in in terms of methodology that we are that I help them to step into that more. And when they start seeing that, everybody has a gift. Everybody comes with abilities. And if we can channel, if I can help my students identify what their gifts are, what do they love to do, and channel that into, you know, that would be an amazing methodology. Whether it's viewing, whether it's sewing, whether it's photography, whether it's water walking, whether it's so many things bringing people in ceremony and circle if we can if you can see your gift what you're comfortable with as as being the beginning of a methodology that you actually know something about then now we're starting to think outside of the box now we're starting to nurture something new I immediately think of uh, actually stepping outside of the academy and how professionalized so many realms have become. Like, you know, there's professional communications and professional social media people. And, you know, even even hobbies are turned into something that that's professionalized. And it's it's striking in how much that language has permeated everything that we do. And I think that certainly when I talk to people who just don't know where to start to to do something, to, to make some sort of change in the world, uh, because they know that there's a problem, they oftentimes they find it like finding people having no idea where to start. And it, it, those when you say that the path is cluttered, it's it's like there's so many barriers p- between, well, I don't want to do the wrong thing. I'm not the right person. I don't have the right skills. I don't know how to do these things. And, you know, certainly the academy, that can be very daunting because there's like, you know, years and years of, of decorum and process and all this kind of stuff that's that's certainly foreign if you're not like from a family that's embedded in it. But outside of the academy, like the process of social change should be, should be so easy in some way like the first steps to take should be so easy and natural 
that it's really striking to think of how cluttered that path really has become. Mm-hmm. It is. And, and absolutely when, and this is what the students come with such a cluttered pathway. So I realized in order to help my learners open up and give them space to um, allow their gifts to emerge, allow them to relate to, to that they actually know how they come to know. And let's build on that in order for them to step onto that pathway that I actually had to pause and say, okay, now let's acknowledge the clutter. Let's acknowledge all the, 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 the things that's getting in the way that's standing in the way between you and you knowing that you know how to come to know. Let's deal with that and let's name it. Let's give it a language so that you can um, put it in its place and not let that be in the driver's seat and not let that instill fear and doubt and insecurity in your search journey. And once we name that, it's a big relief. And so I had my students actually are the ones that over the years have really helped me to identify that. And in the second edition of Kandaswan, I'm really proud of that chapter because it's like something that they all over the years have um, helped me to see because, um, and I think once we can deal with our clutter, we can create space to um, even begin to vision or dream like if I wanted to go on a search how would I really want to do that what are my gifts what excites me what am I great at what do I love what brings me life so we can restore that instead of going through something and trying to perpetuate these ideas of objectivity and neutrality and bias free which is a false it's false those things don't actually ever exist and they never existed on research in relationship or about Indigenous people. There's never been objective or neutral research that's been generated on or about Indigenous peoples. Now, as a podcast where we're talking to writers, I'm really curious about uh, all of the writers we've spoken to in, in, in your writing process. Can you tell us a little bit about how you wrote Kandasawin and how it was different considering there's about a decade between the first edition and the second edition. <laughs> this is so funny. So I have a hard time with writing. So if there are writers out there and you don't think that you're a writer, I totally am with you. I never saw myself as a writer. In fact, I always thought I was a terrible writer. And what business do I have thinking that anybody's going to want to read the crap that I write? And does it even make sense? Because I got through high school not even knowing the components of a sentence. Like I actually went into a master's degree really not even understanding the rules of grammar. I don't know that I even really understand the rules of grammar at this time in my life either. I tend to write more like I speak. And so what I've learned to do, I guess what I've learned to do is <laughs> I've learned to trust myself more. I've learned to trust my voice. And the other thing that I learned to do when I did my first, when I was um, writing my and doing my work with my doctoral work was I started reading other Indigenous people's um, dissertations and people that had way more confidence and were like amazing writers who told stories, who wrote 
using poetry or prose, whose writing I realized was a decolonial writing, I read their works. People like Peter Cole and people like Don Martin Hill or um, Patricia Montour Angus, I read these amazing writers' works, and I really loved the storing, like Joanne Archibald, the storing methodology and the way they used prose. And when I read their work, I love how Bell Hooks writes, very storied um, from her own person. And the more I read writers like this, the more I realized, I started realizing that I, I, love, I would love to be able to write like that because that is more in alignment with who I am and my voice and how I know the world and how I've how I live in the world and so I would think that first of all I had to get over thinking that I didn't know how to write it's like somebody saying I don't know how to sing I I, I don't know how to do something and I say to them well everybody has a song and all voices are beautiful and all voices belong and now I can say that to people. All people are writers and all people are storytellers and all knowledge belongs that I would try to, I would say to people that um, you really have to um, begin to read other people's works and, and see how other people bring their stories and their knowledge forward, because that really helped me to say, I love how that went and it was very moving and they told their personal story because we're, t- we're, we're taught to be writers in a very objective way. And so be being a writer where you start to own your voice and you start to feel comfortable writing from a place of knowing that takes time and, and it takes exposure to other people who write like that, who also are published authors, they've passed their dissertations. And so at the beginning, that really helped me. I think that in this second edition, in between the 10 years from the first one to the next one, this one, I was feeling more comfortable. I really wanted to step more into this idea that I can say something that I actually might know something about something now after I mean, it's been about 16 years I've been teaching Indigenous re-hyphen search methodologies and have been working with Indigenous and non-Indigenous students. And I've come to realize some things and I've grown and I've learned over the years through this work and through the, the teaching and the learning mutually with students. And so in this edition, I decided to take risk and give myself permission to write from my own voice and to write from my experiences and what I've come to know. So there's a few new chapters in there that are more from my voice and from, from my place of um, knowing, I guess. And I, you know what, I really enjoyed writing those. I, I really, and I really felt like, um, Writers like Bell Hooks have been so inspiring to me where they write from their experiences, lessons learned from their encounters through their relationships of, um, of coming to know. And I really enjoyed writing from that place. And I felt like after all of these years of, of the work I've done and the learning and the reflection that I felt like 
maybe at this time I can give myself some permission to do that without feeling like I am not um, and still walk with humility and 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 not try to be the expert. So I really don't want to appear as an expert. I really want to walk and write from a place of humility that leaves space for other knowledge carriers and holders to know that there's always space for their story to emerge for their experiences. So I try to write from that place of um, not being prescriptive and and allowing for space for, because um, there's lots of space for others to join the circle of um, how we how we come to know. And, and I must say that I think with practice and time, it took me, and when I write, I still like, it still takes me a few drafts. So I've learned that with humility, like my first draft has a lot of space for improvement. what people Uh see in the final edition has been drafts upon drafts and I've given it to peers and friends to say what do you think and I'm always open to feedback so tell me what you think am I clear do you understand and if you don't get it then it tells me I need to expand on it more or maybe I just don't need to expand on that idea and I take it out it's a it's a real wayfinding perspective on writing. You know, you find the writing you want that you like, you follow that, you follow your own voice, you go back to it. Yeah, I, that's that was such a wonderful description of how you of your of your writing process. And I really I'm looking forward to doing more writing where I'm at a place in my life where it's more reflexive and honoring of my voice and I think in those spaces of doing that it's been in the morning where I uh, I make my cup of tea. And in the first chapter, I invite people to come and have tea with me. And I make bannock and blueberry jam from the blueberries I picked. And I imagine, you know, so in the morning, I will, is a really nice time where what has journeyed into my consciousness from the dream world is still present. And insights are there for me in the morning. And so in the morning is when I will do my best writing. And I might give myself a few hours in the morning to write. And um, I've come to learn that about my process. And I need to walk and find things that are not in front of the computer or the laptop that um, where I can reflect and journal. And I might be sitting on the land by a stream and I see something so like there was one piece of prose I used to begin that all the chapters and those proses that I wrote emerged at times when I might have been like sitting in my sunroom and I'm paying attention to a finite detail in creation like how the mist lifts off of the um, a frosty roof and I just watched that for an hour or so or I'm sitting in the meadow in the backyard and I see a deer and I might be sitting with that deer for a few hours just in stillness. And at that moment, this prose comes up where I'm in conversation with that deer. And it's at those moments that I record those and I write about them. So I always have a little writing companion, like a little book with me. And I write at these moments because I figure at some point I'm going to use this because it's those details and those moments in time that you can't ever remember or recall when, you, when you're when you actually sitting and writing. So I have those little nuggets 
in files put aside that I bring forward that and those little nuggets happened at different times when I was in creation. The title of your book, Kend Oswin, How We Come to Know, includes the spelling of research in a way that might have been missed by some listeners, although you've said it, you stated it aloud, Indigenous re-search methodologies. What does that mean? Kandaswan is Anishinaabe, and it means how we, it literally means like, the. It's a, it's a lived, spirited word, as much as the language is, that means how the process of how of learning of coming into knowledge of how we come to know and when i hyphenated research in this second book re and i actually put a small r hyphen capital s re hyphen search i wanted to jar the reader to see that are they seeing this right to to do it in a different way very consciously with the intention of hopefully causing the reader to have a pause to see this and to look at it differently because to re-hyphen search is to look at something again, to look at how you want to do this, um, to not just go in default. And so for me, it's a way of saying, let's not default to colonial methods, surveys, questionnaires, interviews. Those are default colonial methodologies. Let's look at this again. Let's rethink this. Let's take a pause and give ourselves some time and some space to um, reconsider how we search, how we come into knowledge that and in that space, restore a piece of our, our, our being and bring that being forward into our, our practice of doing searching. And, um, and I consciously try to say searching versus research because research is one word people default to colonial methodologies, such as surveys, questionnaires, interviews, case studies. And when I say re-hyphen search, people say, what do you mean by that? Or if I just say how we search, how we gather, how we hunt for knowledge, I then build bridges with what uh, Indigenous people might identify with and say, oh, I get that because we we were we grew up in hunting and gathering societies and families. So I'll say, well, how did what did you have to do? And so it causes it creates that pause. And I hope that it creates that pause with the reader when they see that and go, why did she do that? Re hyphen and capitalize S and search. And it's a very conscious pause to hopefully um encourage readers to rethink and um and in that space maybe even in the, in that hyphen <laughs> that little space of that hyphen can become a big space that gets bigger and bigger that we can bring our whole selves into let's bring spirit into our search let's bring our heart into our search let's bring our decolonial love our decolonial knowing our decolonial spirit our decolonial process into our search, what would that look like? If you brought your grandparents into your search or your ancestors, what would that like? So even in that hyphen, there's like a whole world that's waiting to emerge. uh, That's in that world is uh, exists in our memory and in the land and in our ancestors and in our language and in our traditions. And so there's so much in that hyphen. 
Wow. And it certainly jumps right off the page, too. Well, thank you for that. Because I was like, I had to, um, I had to, um, I always have to, um, because in grammatically correct, what's, I always have to like, kind of like stand up for that hyphen and, and, and that, um, that very uh, conscious, like the way, the way I put it. And so it's like, you know, decolonial writing is giving yourself permission Mm. to, Sometimes, you know, I'm an Anishinaabe worldview thinker. I was raised by a fluent Anishinaabe um, woman who spoke English, but her worldview was Anishinaabe. Was, uh, and so I have this Anishinaabe worldview and I speak English. So sometimes I have to make up words to reflect this holism, to reflect the, um, the, the depth and the breadth and to create pauses in the language. So I think that that's something that sometimes I've given myself permission to do is to find ways to generate a pause or to generate a question or a conversation about something. And I'm like, wow, I'm glad you asked about that. Let's talk about language. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about how we language what we know or what we want to know. Mm. One of the questions that I'm asking all of our guests is, Probably not a surprising question, considering the whole point of this podcast is to celebrate uh, Fernwood and its 30th anniversary. But why is independent radical publishing important right now? Well, I, I think that independent radical publishing is it, it, it's a it's a place and a space for for um, I would think like freedom of um, voice, freedom of expression, especially for people that haven't had one of the things I've really appreciated with Fernwood and with the editors. And I want to give a shout out to um, Wayne and Fazila, who have been the editors I've worked with at Fernwood, who have honored my voice, who have have supported the space uh, that I need to be able to say what is important to me that aligns with with my um, worldview and my in my culture and the the knowledge libraries that we as Indigenous writers are building, and I think that that's one of the things that I think Indigenous writers like Fernwood has a good reputation with Indigenous writers because there's freedom there for us to write in a way that is in alignment with who we are, where we come from, and the knowledge we are trying to generate, and so. Sometimes when you write with other publishers, they try to they, they try to standardize and standardize and sameness is colonialism. And so it's important for for me to have a publisher that I can work with where my where my voice or what I'm trying to write about or the knowledge that we're trying to generate. It's these libraries we're building, you know, indigenous libraries have been erased and and burned through colonization and through cultural genocide and we are rebuilding our our indigenous libraries and publishers like fernwood are the conduit through which we're doing that that support our voices that support our knowledge that support the diverse ways in which we are representing um old knowledge within contemporary contexts I have a set of questions that are much shorter, um, and I'm excited to hear your answers to them. The first one, you've already answered half of it, so I'm going to ask, what's your favorite place to read? My favorite place to read is in my sunroom. 
where I can see the trees and I'm surrounded by light. What books are on your to-read pile right now? Right now I'm reading Catherine Vermitt, The Strangers. And um, I've read her first book. And my favorite author whose books I've read, all of them are um, Louise Erdrich. Do you have a ritual that prepares you to write? Oh, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) It it, It might include curling my hair. Oh, wow. <laughs> it might include um, cleaning the house. Uh-huh. <laughs> cleaning the spaces that I am preparing to write in. Um, it might it might involve and often does ceremony. Um, my my smudging and putting my tobacco out and um, making a cup of tea, of course. It might involve all, any of all of those things. Mm, that's wonderful. What are you doing these days for fun? For fun, I am, I always love to walk on the land. That's, that's my fun. I um, have been doing a lot of camping and going up to my community, my, my home reserve of Flying Post, and working on my lot up there. And that's been a lot of fun and, and spending time with my community. That's been so much fun. Mm. What is a book that has changed your life? Oh my goodness. Um, I say when I read Bell Hooks, Sisters of the Yam, and I was, that was like 35 years ago. When I read Bell Hooks, um, Sisters of the Yam, that changed my life. I could see myself in that sisterhood and I could see what she was writing about was the work that we were doing as Indigenous women in healing our, healing out of racism, healing out of internalized colonialism healing out of the darkness. And I could see myself in that book. And I was like, wow, I just loved that book. The final question is, who is someone you look up to? I look up to my grandparents. A lot of people I look up, my mother, they're all in the spirit world. And um, I look up to some of the elders that I work with today. And the other people that whose shoulders we've stood on, and who have helped to um, make the pathways for us. It's it's kind of interesting too. I also look up to the little people in my life, my grandchildren. They're such good teachers. Where can people find your work, whether Kindoswin or other things you've worked on? They can go to uh, goodminds.com. It's a, it's a beautiful Indigenous bookstore in Brantford and or the Fernwood Publishers online. Kathy, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much. You know what? It's been so much fun. And um, I hope it, uh, I hope the listeners uh, enjoy our sharing today. Miigwech. You've been listening to my conversation with Kathy Absalon as part of the 30 Wood podcast series. Episodes come out every two weeks, so be sure to check back to hear your favorite Fernwood authors. 30 Wood is hosted and produced by me, Nora Loretto, with lots of help from the team at Fernwood. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share your favorite episodes. Fortress of magnitude, they can't subdue. Liberation is radical. You're telling me my dreams have to be practical when all these global systems are tyrannical. Point of view, more than two.